we first meet Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, we're given a startling image, uh, image of the vision of Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see what the voice, the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He goes on to tell him to write what he is about to see to these seven churches. The glorious image of Christ, one that starts off the whole book. The next time we see a glorified vision of Christ, it's in chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne, there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and roll, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were born, were born burning, I'm sorry, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was, as it were, a sea of grass, glass like crystal. He, he talks about the creatures that he sees and then giving glory to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then I, chapter 5, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him seated on the throne a scroll. And he explains how no one is able to open the scroll. And they look in heaven and on earth. They're looking all over for someone who can open the scroll, but no one is worthy. And heaven mourns until in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. 
a picture of the glorious Christ as a lamb. Oh, he sounded like a lion, but he had the appearance of a lamb. You kind of get the feeling reading through this book that John is enraptured with the image of Christ. No wonder he lived with Jesus for several years, walked with him. He was one of the inner circle. He was one of the three that saw him transfigured on the Mount of Olives, that saw him crucified on the cross. One of those who saw him resurrected from the dead. And now he's seeing Christ. No wonder it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you get a view like those, tonight we find the third picture of Christ. The third time that John has taken the time to detail what he looks like. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. There are two feasts in chapter 19. The first is the marriage supper of the Lamb. We looked at that last time. Uh, today, there's a whole different kind of feast, and it's not a pretty picture. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Generals, and they rode into battle and ride on horses. The last time we saw this Christ, he was riding on a donkey. Last time he was riding something, it was a colt that no man had ever ridden before. And he rides this colt into Jerusalem, and people are shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this time we see him riding, he is riding on a white horse, the animal of choice when riding the war. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. I want you to notice, there's four times that he is spoken of as having a particular name in this section of scripture. Four times. This is the first one. Faithful and true. Faithful and true. Where do we hear that before? We don't. This is the only time these are used as names. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who will do what he says he's going to do. He is the one who will enact what he says he will enact. He is the one who will conquer what he says he will conquer. He is faithful. He is also true. He is not just true. He is truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. He is faithful and true. You can picture as he's riding into battle, this first banner starts to unfurl as he picks up steam riding ahead and it gives the words faithful and true on that banner. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. What was about to happen here is called the Battle of Armageddon, but that's a misnomer. It's really the judgment of Armageddon because there's no real battle. You're going to see in just a minute, there's not really a battle. But for some reason, we still call it a battle. I don't know why. I mean, Jesus is fighting, but nobody else really is. Watch, watch what happens as we go along. But in righteousness, it says he judges and he makes war. Now, men, we make war. We judge, but it's hardly ever in righteousness, is it? But when Christ does, he does it right. When Christ judges, it's in perfect righteousness, true, faithful. When Christ does it, his war is completely righteous. There are some people that talk about a righteous war, and what they really have is an unrighteous war. There are some people who will fight to the death for what they want to fight for but it's not at all close to wrong. 
But when Christ fights, it's truly righteous. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Remember he said that in chapter 1. That, that piercing knowledge, that wrath, that fury against unrighteousness that he is about to judge, that he is about to make war against. Those eyes of flame. I tell you what, I do not want to deal with someone whose eyes look like fire. You ever seen that? You ever see someone with fire in their eyes and you're just like, I'm getting out of the way. I'm not messing with that. Men, wives, I'm sure you've gotten up that way before. I'm pretty sure my wife has lasers installed in her eyes. And sometimes she gives a look and I, I have to get out of the way. I can't, I can't stay there. But when Christ, man, when you look into the eyes of Christ and you see the fire burning behind those eyes, oh, you better move. You better be behind him and not in front of him. You know what I mean? And on his head, it's kind of funny. Last time we saw Jesus with something on his head, he had a Stephanos. That's the victor's crown. That's in chapter 14, right? This time, he's not wearing a Stephanos. In fact, he's not wearing one. He's wearing many. And he's not wearing the Stephanos. He's wearing the diadem, the royal crown. And it says many, but, but I venture a guess here that it's quite a lot. In fact, I would venture a guess that he's probably wearing every crown. When we, when we see other things, we see the beast trying to wear crowns, diadem crowns. We see the false prophet wearing diadem crowns. We see this beast with uh, seven heads and ten horns wearing crowns, diadem crowns. But Christ is the one who rightfully wears them. And I bet you, I'd be willing to bet that those same crowns that those same imposters were wearing earlier are now on the head of Christ because he is the one who is rightfully in charge. So he has these crowns on his head and there's so many crowns, John doesn't even bother to count them. He just says there's a lot of diadem crowns on his head. Is he, is he saying that Jesus has all these crowns stacked up, you know, just way up high? I, I think it's a. I think this is a vision of Christ as being supreme, as being sovereign, as being the one who has the right to wear all the crowns. And so there's so many crowns on his head in this picture because there's so much authority on him. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as chapter 17 says. So here we have him riding into battle with a bunch of crowns. Uh, I, 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 I'm already convinced. The battle is not going to go very well for the other side. But it gets worse for them at least. It gets better for us, but worse for them. And he has a name written on it. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I said the first banner unfurls with the names faithful and true. The second banner unfurls, but nobody can read it. It's a name that only he has. This was something he promised to one of the churches earlier. He said, I will give you a name that nobody knows but you. And now he has his name that nobody knows but him. No matter what you may know about God, no matter what you may think about God, no matter how much you may explore and study the topic of God, you will never fully comprehend him. There are things that he reveals to us. The Deus Revelatus is Martin Luther would write about it, as Augustine wrote about, the, the revealed God, the God that we know because he's opened our eyes and helped us to see. 
But there is a whole nother Deus Abiscontia, a whole nother hidden God that we don't see because we can't possibly comprehend. We can't possibly attain to that kind of knowledge. And I've got to be honest with you. I don't want a God that I understand completely. Do you? You want to worship something that you get? That you're like, oh yeah, I I know all about that. Let me bow down and worship too. No, no, no. You need something that's much bigger than you'll ever be so that that your worship will go to something worthless. God will never be fully known by us. There's two views of heaven. One view is you get to heaven and everything is perfect. And when I say perfect, I don't just mean that there's no sin or no crying or no death or anything like that. Yeah, okay, we all kind of agree on that. But there's a one view that says that you don't grow, you don't change. You are made spiritually complete and that's it. There's nothing else. You're just in this state of eternal perfection. You don't learn anymore. It's just all good from there. That's it. That's it. You reach the highest plane you can and you don't go any further. There's a whole other view of heaven that says, oh, no, 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 no. What happens is more like a new creation and things are still changing. Things are still growing. They're becoming more and more and more. You're learning more and more. You're growing more and more. Closer and closer to God for all eternity. That's hard to picture. Kind of a, um, if I were to set something up at the back of the sanctuary, and I were to say, dang, I want you to stand up front. You're going to walk toward that object, but you can only walk half the distance between you and that object. What would happen is, the first step, he'd walk halfway. The next step, it'd be another quarter way. And then he'd walk a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. Ironically, he would never actually get to it. Mathematically speaking, you, you would you would keep getting closer and closer and closer, but you'd never actually get there. And that's kind of what that idea of heaven is. You get closer and closer and closer to God. You're, you're relating to him more and more and more perfectly, but you're never quite there. All eternity becomes this endless, joyful pursuit who God is. I'm inclined to think that there's something to that because as wonderful as it is to know God now, and as wonderful as it will be to know God in glory, I don't think I want to know him perfectly well and never be able to find out anything more. I could picture God saying, for all eternity, you're going to keep learning more about me because there will always be more on me. I can picture that being the case. And I think, I think if we're honest, we really don't want God to fully understand because no, not much of God either. Maybe that's why he says that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but I'm only one God. You try figuring that one out? Anybody try figuring that one out? Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's something about his essence that's so totally different and we'll never quite get. But the, part of the joy of eternity will be constantly knowing him more, finding out more, and, and, and getting to know him even better than ever before, and keeping, continuing, striving, learning, growing. I don't know. I just think that sounds like a better way to spend eternity than just in this status quo. Well, I'm perfect now. Nothing else to do. It seems a little more. Maybe in heaven I'll finally get some quiet time. I don't know. 
All that to say, that name that's written that nobody understands, that points us to the nature of God. It points us to him being completely and totally unexplainable, except as he's revealed himself. We see him in the scriptures and we know what he's like because he's told us, but there's a whole nother, there's a whole nother aspect to him that you will never be able to comprehend. And that's a good thing because it means that in all of his glory, there is something to marvel at. There is something to wonder. There is something to be amazed at. That's a good thing for God. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Most likely, this is the blood of his enemies. Some have said it might be the blood that he shed on Calvary. I, I don't know. He gives the picture a little bit later of, of uh, stamping out the wine press of the fury of God's wrath. That's mentioned a couple of times. Not only in this chapter, but back a few chapters. And so I could very well see that that's, that's his enemy's blood and not his. But again, John wasn't doing a DNA test, so we don't know whose blood it is. And the name by which he is called. This is the third name. Another, another banner unfurls. As they're rushing down from heaven through the skies onto the earth's surface, there's another banner that unfurls. And that banner, his name is called the Word of God. Kind of favorite title for John, the Word. He calls Jesus that in John. He calls him the Word of Life in First John. Now in Revelation, he's calling him the Word of God. And the armies of heaven. Oh yeah, he's not alone. Of course he's not alone. He's got his. He's got his whole crew following him. See, here's one of the great things. Every time, every time you see Jesus, every time you see Jesus in Revelation, it has a connection to the churches. In chapter 1, he's walking in the midst of the churches among those seven golden lampstands in the temple. That's the representation that he is among the churches in their present suffering, in their present turmoil, in their present anguish, in their present idolatry in the face of Laodicea. He, he's, he's there in their midst. He's there, right there. Not separated from them, not aloof. He's not far off. We don't, have to, we don't have to send for him. He's there in their midst. In chapters 4 and 5, we see him at the great, at the throne of God, opening the scroll. And you know, when he opens those scrolls, there's, there's that fifth scroll when all those martyrs start falling out from under the altar. They're right there too. The people who have died for their faith, the people who have given their lives for the cause of Christ, calling out to the Lamb. When are you going to avenge us? When are you going to make it right? And God tells them, not time yet. Have some white robes. You'll change while you are. You're going to need them later. Why? Because in Revelation 19, when this army is right behind them, guess what they have on? Yeah, white linen. Fine white linen. Their, theirs isn't stained with blood. His is, but theirs isn't. Hmm, I wonder. Maybe that's because they're not doing the fighting. And they were following him on white horses too. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. You see, some of us have this picture of Jesus as this hippie kind of guy. Peace, love, Jesus kind of thing. Uh, Forever, dude. That's not Jesus. It's not him. 
especially this day. When he comes on this day, he's coming to make war. You better believe I've never seen a good deal of fire in my life. Have you? Anybody ever seen that? Maybe maybe y'all have. I haven't seen that. This Jesus means business. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. Literally, sword. What else is compared to a sword in in Scripture? What? The word. You think maybe this is going to be a decisive battle? In fact, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Yeah? And Jesus says, oh, I got my sword right here. Let's go. I'm almost convinced that this battle is over with the word. That Jesus says the word and his enemies are destroyed. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The same word that created the world is now conquering it. And he will rule them with a rod of iron just like a shepherd rules an unruly batch of sheep. Jesus will rule them. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. It's another name. King of kings and Lord of lords. Twice that title is used. Those titles are put together in scripture. Twice. In the book in Revelation. I think John's trying to tell us something. King of kings, Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. So now he comes and he is ready to make war. And then we look up back up into heaven. We've seen him descend all the way down to the earth. Now we look back up into heaven and there's an angel. And he's standing right in front of the sun. And he calls out with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. I said there are two feasts. The first one is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be a nice feast. The second one is this feast that's about to take place for the birds. And I'm going to tell you something. It's not so nice. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. They are ready to go. They are ready for a fight, except they're not ready at all. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. You almost get the feeling that the false prophet is still trying to pull off the signs. Like he's still trying in desperation to do anything and everything he can do any and every power that he can muster to try to avoid this inevitable defeat. It's almost as though the false prophet and the beast are trying to fight with everything they have and all Jesus does is speak the word and they are captured. It's like it's like they don't even, like they fought into the lies themselves. Someone said it's a lie. Loud enough and often enough, eventually even you'll begin to believe it. I'm almost wondering if the false prophet and if the beast in this battle have deceived themselves as well as the rest of the world, thinking they really are greater than God, thinking they really are the true to the point that they walk right to their doom. They're captured. Then what happens? These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is not hell. 
This is worse than hell. You see, there, there, is, there is death, and then there is judgment. And after judgment, there is either new life or new death. There's either the eternal life or there is the eternal death. We get so confused because we think hell is as bad as it can get. This is worse because this is permanent judgment. This is judgment that, that is eternal in its nature. Hell is only temporary until the death are called out and judged. We're going to see that in just a couple chapters. We're going to see the great, great white throne of judgment. But in fact, next chapter, um, it'll be a couple of weeks from now, but we'll see that great white throne of judgment. And we'll see death and Hades give up the, all the dead that are in them. And they'll come before God at the great white throne and be judged for their works. Hell is not permanent. The lake of fire is. And that's where these go. There's no more deception. There's no more, there's no more beast. There's no, no more of that. Oh, there's still an enemy. There's still one more enemy left. But these two are taken care of here. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds before it with their play. Once again, where's, where's the army that was following the army? They don't even need to follow. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Who won the battle of Jericho? Israel. The walls came a tumbling down, and all they did was yell. God won the battle. What we read earlier today that God sent the hornet before them to help clear the land. In fact, uh, God at one point says, I'm not going to completely eliminate all your enemies at once because then wild beasts will take over the land. So to spare you from the wild beasts, I'm just going to take them over little by little as you go. See, I would have thought of that. I'd have just wiped everybody off and then be like, all right, now i got to do something about all these animals running around. Hey, Moses, Joshua, y'all train the people how to, how to chase all these wild animals. Teach them, teach them how to kill a serpent. You don't need it. He doesn't, God, God doesn't need an army. So why have the army? Why have the army? What, you don't need it. If you are able to conquer and defeat your enemies so decisively, there's not even a battle here. It doesn't even mention them fighting back because there's no fighting back. If he doesn't need the army, why does he have the army? I'll tell you why he has the army. Because he wants to. See that army? We may as well be carrying trumpets and trombones, flutes and cymbals, and be singing his praises all the way down. Because the battle isn't on us. It's, he has the army because he wants one. Every time I see Christ in this book, I see him magnified in a different way. In this chapter, I see him as a Christ who's indomitable. There's no fighting him off. When he says it's time, it's time. When he speaks the word, his enemies fall. Now, if that's the Christ that we serve, I think maybe we could use a reminder of that time to time. In fact, dare I say, I don't think we could use a reminder of that from time to time. I think we need a constant reminder of that fact. If Christ really is that victorious, then what are we doing wallowing around in defeat? Why don't we have it? If our Christ is that victorious, then why do we do it? So, men, women, let's fight like we're winners. Because of Christ, we are. Father, I pray that we will take a child's song and live a little bit more like it. And we may never march in the infantry or ride in the cavalry or shoot the artillery, 
We may never fly over the enemy, but we're in the Lord's army. And if we're in the Lord's army, then that means that we are victorious. Not because we are a great army, but because the one leading the army is great. If we're in the Lord's army, then we are victorious, not because we are something special, but because Christ has conquered all things. And we know that Christ's conquering isn't just a metaphysical conquering. It's not just a spiritual conquering. It is all-encompassing, every aspect, every corner of your creation. Whether spiritual or mental or emotional or physical, every every sphere, every every area in which we fight the battles, we have victory because of Christ. Because we're in His army. In order for in His army, then we ought to be calling the shots. He's the commander, after all. Father, I pray that we would follow our leader, just like a good army member, just like just like a great soldier. When we get word from our commander, and we'll carry it out. Father, that might mean some of us end up dying, martyrs dying for the faith. It might mean that some of us end up living for the faith in terrible situations. It might mean that some of us get uncomfortable because of sharing the faith, recruiting new soldiers, if you will. We might be uncomfortable because we've forgotten just how victorious our commander is. Father, help us to be the soldiers, not to win the battle. You win the battle. That's not our job. Help us make your army as good as possible. And we'll pray that great as we can in the time that we have. Father, let us see you more and more fair. Love you more and more dearly. Carry you more and more fearlessly.